Amen. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Each week at Redeemer, we open a portion of God's Word and study it together. We have been working through the book of Hebrews tonight. We return after a break last week and a guest preacher. We return to the story of Abraham and to the story of his wife, Sarah. As Abraham is explicitly called the father of all who believe, so we might say Sarah is the mother of all the faithful. What do we learn about saving faith from Sarah? Let me invite you to give attention to God's word from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 11 and 12. Hear the word of God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. Amen. This is God's word. May you write it on our hearts. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, we ask that you would be our teacher. Open your word to us. Write it on our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. This is a chapter about faith. Uh, What is faith? Well, it's not a commodity. Faith is not a, a substance. It's not like money in a bank on which you draw when you need it, though I suspect that many of our non-Christian friends might think of our faith that way. They might say, I wish I had faith like you, if I could just get a little bit of that. Uh, But faith isn't a substance we sort of put into a spiritual bank. Faith, what is it? What does Hebrews 11 say? Faith is a response of the whole person to the person of the Lord, And to the word of the Lord. Faith is trusting in him. And not in our own resources or others. And especially for salvation. What we have been seeing about saving faith so far in Hebrews chapter 11. Is uh, beginning at verses uh, 4 and following. By the example of Old Testament believers. There's a number of things. We've seen something about the beginning of faith. The middle of faith. The end of the uh, faith in the Christian life. Back at verse 4, we learned about Abel. Uh, Abel worshipped God by faith. He set his heart on God. He drew near to God and he believed God when God said that the acceptable way to draw near to me is through the sacrifice of a substitute, substitute, a substitute in death. And so he offered that sacrifice and he drew near to the Lord and he was welcomed. He was accepted by the Lord, accepted as righteous. And so we have the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in whom we believe and by whom we come and worship. We saw back in verses 5 and 6, the middle of the Christian life, so to speak. We saw Enoch. And once you've first come to God, then what do you do? You walk with God. And that's what we saw. Enoch, by faith, walked with God he was a God was a friend to him and he was a friend of God 
And then at verse 7, we saw what we might call the end of the Christian life. In the story of Noah, we saw him spared God's judgment, the judgment of the flood that went to the ends of the earth against all mankind for their violence and evil. And when we studied that, we remembered that that judgment was just, that God had said just prior to that, uh, that uh, in Genesis 6, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah, like his generation, was an evil man who got grace from God. He deserved judgment, but he was spared through the ark of salvation God told him to build. And Noah believed the Lord. And so he built the ark and he sheltered, he and his household, and he was spared. And that, that judgment, we said, is a kind of warning to us all uh, about the final end time judgment. We will all appear before the face of God and give accounts. We need an ark of salvation in which we can enter and be safe. And Jesus is the ark in whom we believe, in whom we trust, in whom we enter into union with. And then most recently, in verses 8 through 10, we saw the faith of Abraham. At least the beginning that the writer wants to tell us about. By faith, Abraham went out for God. When God called him, he did what? He obeyed. He left his father's house, verses 8 through 10. He left his father's family. He left his homeland. And he went to the place that the Lord was calling him to go. And when he got there, he lived like a pilgrim. He lived in tents. He lived like a foreigner because he was looking for a heavenly country whose architect, designer, and builder was God himself. He was looking for not Jerusalem in Israel, but the new Jerusalem in the new heavens and new earth. That's what he was waiting for. And now we come in Hebrews chapter 11 to Sarah. Two lessons from Sarah tonight. Faith trusts God's power. Faith Trust God's promise. Verses 11 and 12. In the first place, what I want us to see is this. Faith trusts God's power to accomplish what man is impotent to achieve. Verse 11. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised by faith God's power overcame the impossible and gave the promised child consider Sarah the writer says and I want you to see three or four things about Sarah and um, and and by the way uh, depending upon what translation of the Bible you're reading you may think 11 and 12 are about Abraham, by faith Abraham, versus by faith Sarah. And that's simply because this is a difficult verse to translate. And that's reflected in the various translations. Some think that Abraham is the subject of the sentence and Sarah is alongside him in the difficulties and challenges. And others, as the ESV, the NAS, as we read, 
uh, see that Sarah is the subject here. But I want you to remember three or four things about this godly woman named Sarah. In the first place, remember the example of her godliness. She enters the picture here, as Sinclair Ferguson reminds us, not because her only role is to bear Abraham's son. That would be a less than biblical view of what a woman and a wife is for. There's a much bigger picture uh, going on in Sarah's life than just that. And women don't simply exist to bear the children of men. And that's not why the author has brought her up. He wants to speak of the reception of the promised child, of course. But, uh, but she's already involved in the story of Hebrews 11 and the story of Abraham, even though she hasn't been explicitly named. Because as you recall, when God called Abraham to go, to leave and to go, he was not called to do that alone. God had already provided for him a helper suitable fit for him, fit for him like Eve For Adam, one who had been united to him, who had yoked her life to him, who was to be for him a lifelong companion in friendship and a lifelong help, and a mutual help in serving the Lord. This is what marriage is about. When Abraham came home to their house in Ur in Mesopotamia where they lived among family, were wealthy, and were settled down in the middle years of life. You can imagine what that conversation might have been like. Sarah, he says, we need to leave. It's time to pack. We need to go. What are you saying, Abraham? She might have said, why? Because God has called us to go. God has called us to go and he has made a promise to us. Then she may have said, and where are we going? (laughs) And he says, I don't know. God hasn't told me. He he just said, go to a place I will show you. I don't know where we're going. And hmm, she thinks, this could be interesting. And she says, count on me. I'm going with you. And she went with him. She leaves kindred and country, hearth and home, just as Abraham did. Not a, uh, uh, and, and to live in tents, like a pilgrim, just as Abraham did. Living as a foreigner in a foreign land. And you may recall that her traveling companion in that journey was a man who was not exactly the best of husbands in fear of foreign leaders if you recall the story of Abraham and Sarah in fear of foreign leaders Abraham hid his marriage to her offered her as his sister to the leaders on multiple occasions as his own sister to be their woman not exactly a model of protective Love, But her life is a godly example for all women, whether in a difficult marriage or some other situation. Peter tells us uh, that uh, we, uh, to women, he says, do not let your adorning be external, 
um, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, the clothing you wear. And he doesn't mean make yourself ugly. Sarah, we know, is an attractive woman, and it's not wrong to be attractive. But he says, you know what matters more? He says, let the adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And he goes on, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves. By submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you, he says, are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Where did Sarah get the power to live a godly life trusting in the Lord for an uncertain future with a sinful, selfish, and foolish man? That Abraham was. She got it through faith or trust in God. Remember also her longing, her grief, and her doubt. I mean, Abraham wasn't sinless and she wasn't either. And Abraham suffered and she did too. You remember that God had promised Abraham not only a place but a people descendants even a son and yet Sarah was barren she was barren when it was promised she was barren for decades after the promise the Lord had closed her womb try as they might for decades of marriage Sarah remained childless and in a culture that valued offspring And perhaps we might say uh, at times, as even today, improperly valued a woman or a wife simply for her ability to conceive and give children. She would have been a woman who felt great shame in her day, great sorrow of heart, uh, grief, and for a long time. Time And when Abraham complained to the Lord and said, the heir of my house is this son of my servant, not a son of my own flesh. Surely Sarah shared in that anguish when God promised he would have his own child. Surely she hoped that would be the case through her. And when that promised child had not come still years and years later, you can imagine that it was through tears that she said, Abraham, you're supposed to have a child. Why don't you take my servant girl, Hagar, and go into her and conceive? And he does. And her plan wasn't God's plan. Abraham went along and he shouldn't have. She believed the promise that he should have a child. She despaired that that child should come through her own body. And then Ishmael was born to Hagar, and that didn't end well. You remember? Her sorrow was aggravated by the arrogance of her handmaiden. And then along comes the Lord. He visits them in the tent. And he says to Abraham, when I return this time next year, Sarah will have a son. Genesis chapter 17, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. And she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. 
And then Abraham, it says, fell on his face and he laughed. And he said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And then in chapter 18, the Lord comes and he repeats the promise to Abraham. And he does it in the hearing of Sarah as she's standing behind the Lord, behind the wall of the tent, listening in. And here they are in chapter 18, verse 11, old and advanced in years, and the way of women has ceased with her. She's not only been barren, she's now passed through menopause, is how we would put it. And she hears this promise again. And so verse 12 of chapter 18, she laughed to herself saying, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? So she laughs. The Lord confronts her about her laugh. She lies to the Lord about laughing, if you track the story. And the Lord says, no, but you did laugh. And that's the end of that story. There's not a word at its end about Sarah believing the repeated promise of God. But Hebrews points us to her faith. Genesis gives us the impression that she remained unbelieving. She knows her history. She knows she's been barren. She knows her age and how her body works and the way of women. And that's in her past now. She knows her husband. He's old. He's worn out. She laughs at the thought of the two of them being intimate in that way. It's been years, perhaps, since she has enjoyed that pleasure. Genesis leaves us with her laugh and her lie and her doubt, but Hebrews says she was a woman of faith. How can Hebrews say that, and how can we believe that? I think we have to read between the lines just a little bit. They had a son. And it wasn't a son dropped off by a divine stork, you know, who appeared over the tents one day and said, here's the kid I was telling you about. They had a son in the way that people have children. You might imagine that conversation. Abraham looks at her with that look in his eye. Sarah looks back at him. Really? You're an old man. And Abraham says, I think perhaps what every husband dreams to say, you know, babe, the Lord says we ought to give it a go. And Sarah says, come on, 99 and 90 against nature, against barrenness, against menopause. His body is good as dead. They conceive. She must have said, let's see if what the Lord says is true. Let's act on this word of promise. And God brought life out of death. What man cannot accomplish, God achieved. He fashioned the first woman out of the rib of a man. He fashioned Isaac 
out of a couple of geriatrics, and he sent his son into the womb of the Virgin Mary because he's the God of the miraculous who does all his holy will whenever and wherever he pleases against all human impotence. Now, how should we apply this? First, let's be careful. This is not a blanket promise to all who are barren that they will have, if they just believe as Sarah believed, biological children. Sharing the faith of Sarah does not mean sharing every particular of the promises given to Sarah. Isaac is to be the first covenant child in the line of the covenant promise through whom or by which the Messiah himself shall come. It was a particular promise to her. But to be sure, her example does invite you to look to the Lord. For that which seems impossible to you, as does the godly example of Hannah, who was barren, and through tears and prayers appeared at the temple to pray and ask the Lord for a child, and eventually the Lord opened her womb and gave her Samuel. We are to be encouraged by this example. That the Lord can do what seems impossible to us. But examples are not promises to us. We must still pray and say, Lord, if it be your will. We must learn as well to content ourselves. When God in his providence says no or not yet. But let us believe in this God and in his power after all. Every one of you who is a believer in him has already experienced a demonstration of this power of giving life in death. For when you, Ephesians 2, were dead in your transgressions and sins, God made you alive with Christ. Spiritually speaking, he brought life in your death. He is the God who does this, the God who helps the helpless, the God who does for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This is the God in whom we are invited to trust. And this is how we continue in the Christian life. It's not just how we began. We didn't just throw up our hands and say, I can't save myself. I can't forgive myself. Help me, forgive me, have mercy on me. We said all those things in our own way, their own words. Lord, I need you. But even... In the midst of the Christian life, as we feel acutely the pains and sorrows of this life, when we are exhausted and we don't know what to do, when we are at the end of our rope and there seems to be nowhere else to turn, how do we go on as Christians? Well, the Apostle Paul had some experience in this. He had a thorn in his flesh for which three times he says, I asked the Lord, take this thorn in my flesh away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Paul was brought to weakness to show the power of God that sustains him. 
And he goes on to say, therefore, I boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Listen, when you have no answers, when you have no solutions, when, when whatever it is seems absolutely humanly unachievable, when you are impotent, when you have nowhere else to turn, you can always turn to the Lord and cry out as we just sang, abide with me. Fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord. With me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, abide with me. And so like Sarah, those with saving faith trust God's power to accomplish what man is impotent to achieve, even life to a dead soul. And the second thing I want you to see is this at verse 12. Faith trusts God's faithfulness to fulfill what he has promised. Therefore, verse 12, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. You see what it's saying? They had a promise. They trusted God to fulfill that promise and God did what he said he would do as God always does. That promise was given to Abraham when he was about 75 years old before the beginning of its fulfillment. God brought him outside when he was about 75 years old and he said, Abraham, look to the heaven and number the stars and count them if you're able. And then he said, so shall your offspring be. And 25 years later, Isaac is conceived. And he lives to see Isaac grow up and become a man. And he lives to see Isaac's sons, Jacob and Esau, become just little boys. And that's all he lives to see in the line of the covenant promise. He didn't live to see descendants as many as the stars of heaven or as many as the innumerable grains of sands by the seashore. Not He did not live to see that in this world, in his own flesh. Was God faithful to that promise, however? Absolutely he was faithful. From Abraham and Sarah came Isaac and Jacob and then Joseph and then Moses and then the Israelites and then the Messiah And in the Messiah, he has ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and language and nation, an innumerable host. No man can count. And so when you look at the cross, what do you see? You see God's awesome faithfulness. Sinclair Ferguson again. Nothing, not even the instinct to spare his own son, will turn God back. From keeping his word. And if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's seed, heirs of the promise. You belong to Christ by faith. You are the spiritual descendant of your forefather, Abraham, and we might say your foremother, Sarah. They didn't live to see the fulfillment of the promise, but God did what he said he would do. God always does what he says he will do and faith looks to him for him to do it 
Faith isn't, however, telling God what to do and waiting on him to do what you think he ought to do. God isn't a genie in the bottle. And if you rub his belly three times or a thousand times, he doesn't pop out and grant you your three wishes. He doesn't promise that he will do all your will. No amount of faith will overrule his holy providence. And so we might remind ourselves it is not for lack of faith that sick Christians die. For we are all bound to die. And if a faith healer tells you that if you just had more faith, you would get well and live. You just ask them how many faith healers who had that message are alive after the age of 100 and after the age of 125. Not a one, because it isn't true that if you just have more faith, you will invariably get well and live. Just as it is not Just as it is not for lack of faith that poor Christians are poor. We have no promise of earthly treasure in this life, dear friends. Now, it may be our sin, it could be our foolishness that makes us poor or keeps us poor. You may scratch your head and say, if I had only not invested in the airline that sunk a plane in the Everglades, I'd have a lot more money just a personal example from somebody I know it may be not your sin or your foolishness but another person's sin or another person's greed or an indefinable injustice in the world or an economic downturn that that makes or keeps you poor it it may be you're poor just because you're starting out in life and many people who are starting out in life are poor It may be you're at the end of your life and your savings is gone or going away and you anticipate being poor or it just might be God's providence with no discernible human cause that you are poor. Faith is not belief in God's power to do for you all that you will ask to make you healthy or wealthy. Faith is believing in God's power to do all for you that he has promised to you. What has he promised to you? The writer of Hebrews tells you at least one of those promises. If you were to flip over to his very particular applications in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 5. He says keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said I will never leave you nor forsake you. In other words, he's saying God can give you contentment as you trust his promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you. As you trust him to always be looking out for you, whether rich or poor, you can be content. That's the meaning of Paul's often terribly misapplied awfully taken out of context assertion in Philippians chapter 4 verse 13 that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. No, Paul did not mean that through faith in Jesus he could leap tall buildings with a single bound, 
that he could make 10 out of 10 free throws in overtime for the championship, or that he could run over NFL linebackers on the way to the touchdown, or some other nonsense. Some of you aren't built for that, and no, you cannot do that through Christ who strengthens you, who has not promised to strengthen you to that end. But that verse comes in the midst of uh, a, a discussion of contentment. At verse 12, he says, I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of placing, uh, of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. What is the secret of that contentment? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So genuine saving faith trusts God's power at work as God has promised to be at work. Believe his promises for yourself and for his body, the church. Believe them for yourself. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, Sermon on the Mount, do not be anxious about your life. What you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, he says. They neither sow nor reap nor gather in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Yes! You're much more valuable than they. So he has more to say, but he concludes, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things will be given to you. Believe these promises for yourself, the things he has said. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. And believe his promises for the church. What has he promised? I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Some of you are uh, more new to Redeemer than others. We're delighted that you're here. You know that Redeemer is built on the promise of God. Not that he gave us a promise that he would prosper our way and build his church in and through us right here at this building and this place and at this time but built on the promise that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it and we trusted him we looked to him we leaned on him in our helplessness and in our impotence and if we think because we buy a building whether we do or not and that's your decision if we think we've arrived if we think we're strong if we think we've made it If we think we've done anything, we are mistaken. God is the powerful one. God does what God wants to do. We look to him to meet our needs, to grow his church, to build his people. This church wasn't wasn't built on the eloquence of a human fool. But it has grown by God's power through the preaching of Christ crucified. As Paul says, who is a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. We believe in Jesus, therefore. We trust him with our families, we trust him with our lives, we trust him with our finances. 
and we believe Jesus and we trust him with our church. We give away money for church plants and missionaries. We aspire to be a church that's planted, that plants other churches. We give our time and our talent and our treasure to one another, to help one another, to love one another, to share life together. Why? Because Jesus said he would build the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we bank our hope on the one who is raised from the dead by God's power, according to God's promise. And are there days of human fickleness? Absolutely. Human weakness? Absolutely. Failure to believe? Absolutely. But that does not stop God from doing as God has promised to do. And so we honor God when we say with the Apostle Paul, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we can ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen. And believers say, I believe that, Lord, and help my unbelief. Let's pray. We do believe, Lord, and help our unbelief. Thank you that you're the God of all authority, the God who has good purposes and plans, the God of promises, and the God of power to perform all that you have promised. Help us to know what you have promised and to look to be fed from your hand. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand and sing.